The preaching of God's Word is in verse 16, Colossians 3 and verse 16, as we think, again, on the Christian's life in this world. Here we see this exhortation of our inner man, the heart of man being maintained. So here then, the Word of God, verse 16, let the Word of Christ dwell in you you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. This is uh, a key part of what it is to put on the new man. So you'll notice in verse 12, put on therefore as the elect of God these various uh, blessed graces and speaking of putting on charity, verse 14, and letting, verse 15, the peace of God rule in our hearts. And now we have the word of Christ, which is to dwell in us, but not just dwell, but to dwell richly in us, but not just so, but in all wisdom, that it is to permeate the whole of what we are in the inside. And so our desires and affections, our thoughts and engagement of our minds but also as biblical wisdom is the putting into practice the divine instruction, Uh, there is, as it were, the addressing of the inner reality which would spring forth into faithful display of the new man. And so, as the scriptures regularly do, Paul, by inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, is exhorting us from the inner depths of our being to be diligent in godliness. And we'll see that a preeminent part of that is the use of the Lord's Psalms. And we'll see, of course, many connections already. Connections come to mind as the Psalms give us the full exposure and expression of the heart and of its experiences. It's no wonder that the Psalter should have a fundamental part in permeating our souls with the word of Christ and all wisdom that would then lead us to sing with grace to the Lord. So we have something here of a fundamental point of true godliness. This is not something peculiar to our heritage. It's as if some think that we leap to Colossians 3.16 to vindicate our principle. This has actually been key for the history of the church So the early church sang the Psalms and loved the Psalms and ministers often would have the whole of the Psalter memorized and the earliest church sang the Psalms and loved the Psalms as of course they were originally composed under the Old Testament. And so the church in all of its ages has ever had this key feature of true godliness, even the Psalms of God which uh, give us material to sing, but as we see as well, it gives us the means of knowing Christ and his word governing our inner man. So we wish to look at the heart maintained this evening, looking at three things. Firstly, looking at the master of the heart, who it is that governs it. Secondly, the means for the heart, what are what's used to Uh, renew and strengthen and keep our hearts. And thirdly, the melody of the heart. What happens from the heart 
when grace is active. So the master, the means, and the melody of the heart. Well, firstly then, the master of the heart. So you'll notice the words before us in verse 16. We see about the word of Christ, but notice these words, dwell in you richly. This expresses not a visitation. It's not a stay over for a season or a little bit of uh, an influence, but rather it speaks of uh, an abiding. And so that helps us realize that we're not speaking of a little influence, but uh, a controlling influence, a permeating influence. And what is it that's to dwell? Well, notice the word of Christ. And this is a full expression. The word of Christ, of course, can mean the word related to Christ, the message of Christ, which seems to be in the forefront of the apostles' minds. So the word which reveals Christ, which instructs us regarding Christ. It's related, of course, to that very frequent expression, the gospel of Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so, of course, that is the good news which comes from Christ, but it's the good news which regards Christ and makes him known to us. And so here we have this testimony that our hearts are to be governed by this word, this message, this truth. And so it is that the gospel is to permeate our souls. It is to dwell in us richly. We'll consider that more in a moment. But for now, simply note that the heart of the Christian is to be um, uh, dwelled in by the good news of Christ Jesus and the full revelation of his mind, which of course is not just the New Testament, though that may be a clearer revelation and a clarifying revelation, but the word of Christ, of course, includes the whole of the scriptures, the record of his works before his incarnation, the record of his promises and prophecies and his uh, historical work with his people, as well as his incarnation his earthly ministry, his betrayal, his death, his resurrection, his reigning in heaven till all the nations are brought beneath him, as well as, uh, in fact, the uh, return from heaven. And so it is that we have before us the whole scope of the Lord Jesus Christ, the word, the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is before us this evening we have to ask ourselves, is that mastering our heart? Is our heart governed by the whole message of the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, it's easy for us to say we know the material. We can rattle off the material. We can speak of all of those different facts. uh, But we also know the difference between being able to relate facts and something actually permeating and governing our inner man. So the word of Christ is the word related to Christ, revealed, uh, revealing to us Christ. But it's also the word from Christ. It's not my word or your word or the apostle's word. It's the word which Christ has sanctioned. You can see a little hint of this in 1 Peter and chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 and at verse 11. There you'll notice Peter exhorts, uh, encourages rather us to see that the Spirit of Christ has been active 
from the very beginning, searching what, speaking of the prophets, which uh, served in the Old Testament, they were searching what or what manner of time, notice this expression, the spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory uh, that should follow. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. You can see both these ideas put together. And so on the one hand, the prophets are revealing the work of Christ. So what is being revealed in and through them? Namely, verse 11, the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, both his humiliation and his exaltation. That is the revelation of Christ, his person and his work. But notice that it is Christ himself who is revealing this in and through them. And so it's the spirit of Christ which was in them that did signify these things. And so Christ is both the revealer, the one who opens the understanding of the prophets and makes them to understand his message. And he is the revealed one. He's the one that is revealed by them. And so when you read, for instance, as a simple example, Isaiah 53, where is that from? Well, we're right to say, well, Isaiah wrote Isaiah 53. And we'd be right to say, well, God uh, gave to Isaiah the prophecy of Isaiah 53. But here we see that it is specifically attributed to the second person of the Blessed Trinity, the Spirit of Christ. Christ is revealing these things. He's opening the minds of the prophets, uh, providing them that material that they were then to relate and pass on. So this is what is to dwell in us, the revelation that comes from Christ, which is of Christ, the word of Christ, the message of Christ. Now, when we see these things together, we can say it quite simply. What is to govern and dwell in our hearts is Christ himself. And so if it's his word, the revelation of his will, then that means he is the one who's to abide in our hearts. It's his revelation that's to abide in our hearts. If it's the revelation of his person and work, well, again, he is the one who's to abide in our hearts. So it's not just as we might think of syllables that are to abide in our hearts. Truly, we know Christ only by the syllables of his word, but it is the one who has revealed these words. And so it's Christ by and with his word that is to dwell in us. So you can see this idea, of course, already in this chapter when Paul says, for instance, in verse 11, that Christ is all and in all. Verse 3, ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. Verse 4, when Christ, who is our life. And so this is one way of Paul saying what Christ has given to us is to be something that is consciously cultivated to have full access to all that we are. So 
what is to dwell? Well, the word of Christ, which relates then to Christ himself. But how is he in his word to dwell? Notice it says richly and in all wisdom. Richly is a word that refers to an abundance and possessing of great influence. And so when it says that the word of Christ is to dwell in you, it is sufficient already to realize that that means he's to uh, establish his reign in you. But then Paul adds this richly. And so he's to influence every portion, every aspect. There's no compartmentalizing of Christ and relegating him to a particular part of our thoughts and part of our affections. We hear regularly this idea expressed throughout uh, the visible church that, you know, Christ is not just to govern us on in public worship. We would be delighted if his people were governed by Christ in his public worship. That is, that people worshipped him as he said. That would be an excellent start. But the sentiment is right. He's not only to govern us in our public worship. He's not only to govern us in our private worship and in our secret devotions. He is to govern all aspects of all that we are from the inmost being. He is to be influencing with an abundance all things. Have you ever thought that some Christians seems strange how freely they speak of Christ. Isn't that a shame that that would strike us as strange? That a Christian in whom the word of Christ is dwelling should seem strange to us that they speak so much of Christ. Brethren, what's strange is that we find that strange. What's strange is that we who know Christ Jesus, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge, and who have Him by His Spirit abiding in us, and whose Word is to permeate all that we are, it is strange that we speak of other things than of Christ. You see, brethren, we live in days of great declension. Now, we don't mean by that that there are instances of great growth. We don't mean by that that the Lord is not at work in many people. We do mean by that that the standards of true godliness are at a low point. We have a multiplying of means today. So bookstores galore and anyone in our nation could have very quickly a Bible, which would be sufficient in and of itself to guide them. But the best of books in 48 hours delivered to their house And if they didn't have that, they could go to a public library and get online and read the best of material free of charge. And yet, the means having been multiplied is not the measure of godliness. Rather, the life transformed from within is the measure. The life influenced with an abundance by that word dwelling in us. And notice richly in all wisdom which is, of course, inclusive of our understanding. But wisdom in the Bible is understanding, which is, we might say, turned to practice. And so you think of the Proverbs, and the Proverbs are ever instructing and training and teaching, but it's training and teaching to activity. And so we're, James, which is a New Testament book of wisdom, 
tells us that we're not to be hearers only, but doers of the word. And so here, when Paul uses this very rich and uh, well-established word, wisdom, it is a word that is quickly understood to indicate that it's not just to inflate our intellect. Now, there will be the increasing of our understanding as we study the word and as his word abides in us, our minds will increase in their understanding of truth. But you'll see that the point is to lead us unto, by the grace of God and in fellowship with Christ, unto the display of godliness to the praise of God. And so it ends, of course, in this verse, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. But here it is in all wisdom. And notice that word, all. It's not just wisdom for, you know, my pet interest or my particular role, but it's all wisdom. The disclosure of God's will in all things is to be embraced by us. And so there's wisdom as far as domestic duties are required. There are, there's wisdom as far as duties within the church are required. How to walk in this world, how to carry out our job, how to carry out our role, how to pray for others, how to uh, serve the Lord in every field and aspect of our lives. And so it's no wonder that uh, just a couple verses beyond, Paul quickly goes through a number of very fundamental relationships. So the point is that this word of Christ, this message revealing Christ and this message authorized by Christ, when it dwells in us, is to dwell in us unto that godly living wherein our whole lives are governed unto practice by his word. Now, of course, it's no wonder that it should be in all wisdom when if it is Christ that's dwelling in us by his word, notice that Paul has earlier said in verse 3 of chapter 2, speaking of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If his word abides in us, it will necessarily bring forth wise thoughts, desires, and conduct. And so it is Christ by his word that is to be the master of our heart. But how is it, secondly, that this takes place? What are the means the Lord has given? Well, Paul is not pretending to give us a comprehensive address on every means that the Lord gives, but he does give us a preeminent means. And this is, notice, firstly, the material that is to be used. He indicates here with the words, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now those words before you appear in English and are fairly familiar, no doubt. And we might think, as is common for many in our day, that psalms, well, everyone knows that. Hymns, everyone knows that as well, because you can go get a hymnal today. You can find John and Charles Wesley and Isaac Watts and you know all these others that have written from the early church to today. And so that must be what's hymns. And spiritual songs, well, we must know what that is because... There's a lot of that taking place in, you know, worship today. But brethren, these words actually are from the Greek. And Paul is himself a student of the scriptures. And these words are not mere, um, you know, things that Paul has landed upon, but rather these are standard ways 
This is a standard way of referring to the Psalms, the Psalter, 150 Psalms that are given to us. So notice the word Psalm. And of course, this is in Greek originally. And there's a Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is known as the Septuagint. And if you have the Septuagint, you would, and you were a student of the Septuagint, you would know without hesitation to what Paul's referring. Because the word Psalm, for instance, is used 78 times throughout the Psalter, 67 of which are used as titles to the Psalter and the Septuagint. But it doesn't stop there. The word hymns in the Greek used 13 times in the Psalter, six times in titles. Finally, the word songs is used 45 times in the Psalter, 36 of which is in the titles. And so the point is, these are not randomly chosen, nor are they anticipating strange developments from the 1700s onward. These are things that Paul, as a student of the scriptures, would have been well versed in and is communicating uh, to us. So, for instance, you can think of this in the Gospels and the book of Acts. There are times when you have the uh, law and the prophets referred to. Well, we know that that's an Old Testament breakdown. Or the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, which was a Jewish way of speaking of the whole of the wisdom literature. And so these different descriptions of the scriptures are understood by us. No one thinks, for instance, that when uh, Paul says, or when in the scriptures we read of uh, what is written in the law and the prophets, that we're somehow relating to the law of the 20th or 21st century and new prophets that would arise in you know, whatever era to come, it's a clear reference back by using standard titles that would have been familiar with the audience. Well, the same is true here. These are standard titles to which Paul would have been uh, quite familiar, with which he would have been familiar, and which uh, other believers likewise would have been familiar. But notice, it can't be other than something that is inspired because what is to abide in us it's the word of christ it's his word that reveals himself it's his word which is revealed by himself and moreover notice this word spiritual we hear the word spiritual and sometimes we think well that's just this sort of inward rush of emotion but in the greek the word refers to that which authors these songs These are songs that are spiritual because authored by the Spirit. They're not spiritual because they make us feel a certain way. They are objectively the product of the Spirit. And so Paul will elsewhere refer to the spiritual man, which is governed by the Spirit of God. So the spiritual man is not a man in touch with his feelings. That's not the meaning of that. The spiritual man, as Paul says, is one who is governed by the Spirit. And so it is here. These songs are governed by the Spirit, given by the Spirit. And so before us, Paul is directing us to the Christian and the gospel ordinance of using the Psalms. And that for this very rich way of affecting our inward man unto gladness and maturity. So what is the material that is meant to be used that the word of Christ would dwell in us richly in all wisdom. Well, here are psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. And simply put, 
It's the Psalms. The Psalms are that chief means given. And of course, in our own era, this is uh, an exceptional point, but not in the history of the church. When we step back, for instance, think of this, and you have, let's be clear, the history of the church goes way back into you know, the times before the coming of Christ. And the history of the church has ever been permeated by the singing of the Psalms. But even if we simply made use of the New Testament church, you would have the Psalms being preeminent in not only the public worship, but the private piety of Christians. And you would see that in devotional literature, you would see that in references and other such things, all the way up and through the 16 and 1700s, when it is the so-called era of modern hymnody began. Well, think of that for a moment. We're in 2023. And so up until the 16 and 1700s, the Psalms were preeminent. They were primary in the devotion of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you looked only at those years, you would see the overwhelming majority fixated upon the preeminent use of the Psalms for private and public devotion. And then when you incorporate the whole history of the church before the coming of the king in the flesh, it is without question the dominating uh, way of piety was by the means of the Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs that God has provided. Moreover, think of what the Psalms convey to us. Sometimes people ridicule psalm singers because you can't sing the name of Jesus Christ. Well, we may not sing so many syllables that that could be easily challenged, but we have Christ throughout the psalms. And so you have the example of Psalm 22, the very words of Christ upon the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Which goes on to speak of other aspects of his humiliation and onward to his exaltation. You have Psalm 40, verses 6 and following, which speak of Christ's joyous embrace of the incarnation. Lo, I come to do thy will, I take delight, and so on. And the betrayal and his crucifixion and his resurrection. Psalm 110, his ascension and his session reigning over all things. His certain present reign, whereby he's bringing all nations unto himself and his future coming when he will return in glory. All of these things saturate the Psalms. But moreover, not only do the Psalms convey to us the revelation of the person and work of Christ, they are steeped in the very piety he would create within us. Blessed is the man, Psalm 1, who does what? Well, he doesn't walk as the world does. He doesn't talk as the world talks. He doesn't think as the world thinks. But what he does is he meditates upon God's law day and night. And he hides God's law in his heart. And you see this throughout the psalm, the Psalter. The Lord is permeating the heart of man unto godliness. And so this is no invention by the Apostle Paul. Dare we say it's no invention new to the life of the church by the Holy Spirit. This is the basic and fundamental way believers have ever been matured and known the fellowship of Father, Son, and Spirit, the making use of these divinely inspired 
psalms. Well, how is this material to be used? Notice it says, teaching and admonishing one another in these psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts the Lord. So the teaching and admonishing is by means of singing. Notice how that's related. We're teaching and admonishing one another in these psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in, the, in our hearts to the Lord. So as we gather together, and as we sing these psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, we're taking part in a corporate activity whereby we are instructing one another and exhorting one another. And so, brethren, you hear all this talk today about participatory worship as if God has not established the perfect participation of the body of Christ by the singing of these psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. What a beautiful thing that we take up his word and in faith we express our own desires, but we're also in the presence of one another, exhorting one another, teaching, instructing, and helping one another grow while uh, warning one another all of which both addresses the mind and the heart and the action. So if we're going to be instructed, that's going to instruct our minds and understanding, as well as it's going to instruct our hearts as to what they should love and what they should despise. And it's no wonder, is it, that the Psalms are full of both cultivating a love for righteousness and a hatred towards sin. And so it's instructing us not just in sort of the academic uh, lesson of our day, but it's actually cultivating within us these things. It cultivates a love for those who are afflicted, and it cultivates mercy uh, toward them. It cultivates a stand for righteousness. It cultivates a longing for the return of Christ and the vindication of his great name. It's instructing us, not just inflating our minds, but filling them with wholesome doctrine while also instructing our hearts, but also by exhorting There is the uh, tending to our hearts and our wills and affections unto action. So you think of the proper effect of exhortation is not just a feeling, but rather a practice. So if we're exhorted unto prayer, we don't just take that exhortation and say, well, it's had its effect because I now know my duty. The effect of an exhortation when rightly brought forth is that we end up doing the thing to which we've been exhorted. And so when here it says that we're being instructed and exhorted, and we're instructing and exhorting, it's both instructing us as to know what we should believe and do, and it's exhorting us unto the practice of those things as well. So the Lord makes use of the Psalms to this end. Brethren, you can think of the great privilege that God has given in not leaving this up to uninspired men, but has given us a divinely inspired book of praise. But it's not just praise, is it? You'll see that it's singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And yet, though it has this divine orientation, ultimately of praise to God, in the use of these divinely inspired psalms, we're also to one another instructing and exhorting and being instructed and being exhorted so that it is the Lord in his praise is making, giving us means for his dwelling in our hearts. You start to think of how it is that God dwells 
in the beauty of holiness, and you start to see a bigger picture that by the Psalms sung, his praise is being uh, expressed and our hearts are being transformed and kept. And where is God? Well, God is everywhere. We know that. But he's manifesting himself in the beauty of his holiness, in the beauty of his praise among his holy people. So we see in Psalm 22 that Christ not only is humbled, but he's exalted. And what does he do? He'll sing his praises in the midst of his people. Christ is with us when we sing his praise. It's the word of Christ being sung. It's the word of Christ permeating our souls. And so this material made use of is for the habitation of God's people by the living and holy God. The believing use of the Psalms is a preeminent means that our hearts would be brought to enjoy the blessed reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's no wonder that we see such a drop-off in piety when the Psalms are marginalized. And what happens is, many things, but in the pushing out of the divine manual of praise and the introducing of unwarranted material for praise, there becomes an imbalance in things, both first table and second table. And so you listen to praise music and it latches upon what we might think are beautiful attributes of God. And of course, we're right to glory in his love and glory in his grace. But the Psalms are full of that and of his justice and righteousness, of his coming judgment and wrath. And you look, just survey a hymnal of uninspired praise, and you will see very quickly the utter imbalance, if not the utter absence of such expressions. You see these ideas of this personal uh, uh, approach to God, which is, of course, biblical, But the Psalms are full not only of the personal enjoyment of God, but the public benefit to the whole of God's people. And it builds this desire for the whole of his kingdom. And it has a focus oftentimes upon the oppressed and broken and cast down, which many times uninspired material avoids. The point is, who better to give us the comprehensive approach to the whole of what is needed for our souls and the whole expression of our praise than God himself. And when it is so that these words are sung and made use of, it is then that the means of Christ dwelling in us are being employed unto our holy practice. Well, lastly then, the melody of the heart. Notice singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. The word grace is a word that appears with a breadth of meaning, but all of which relates to goodness and gladness and joy and thanks. You can hear expressions even in our common speech. Sometimes you'll hear people say, you know, before we eat, let's say grace. Well, we're not just talking about this, this word, but we're talking about giving of thanks. And that's because in the New Testament, especially the word grace has that notion of thankfulness and giving of thanks to God. It has the notion of a gift provided And of course, that which brings salvation, which gladdens the heart. So this word has this breadth of uh, meaning of joy and kindness and thanks and uh, blessedness. And we are to sing with that in our hearts. 
So we're singing, we're lifting up our voices. Never let someone say that the New Testament doesn't tell us to sing. It does. And that it doesn't tell us to sing psalms because it here does. But notice, it's not just the vocalization and the external melody. In fact, we see the emphasis here is that in our outward singing, it is focused upon what's taking place in our hearts. It's very easy, isn't it? We set up you know, public worship, we have psalm song. We set up family worship, we have psalm song. We set up secret worship, we have psalm song. And we can fall into the routine of those things. We can sing the psalm and know that we're doing right. But the question is, are we singing with grace in our hearts? Are we singing with faith? Yes. And thanksgiving? Yes. And joy in our hearts to the Lord. This blessedness of our souls. So when we come to singing a psalm here in a moment, it is worth our while to pause and ask the Lord that He would fill our hearts with gratitude, that as we sing His praise, we would join in together with this gladness to the Lord who is our God, that He would give us grace to sing even the pronounced curses upon His enemies, that we would be free from the personal bitterness and sing those only because we desire God to be glorified over His enemies. So we leave room for the vengeance of the Lord, which is His as the Lord says, when we confess our sins in the singing, for instance, of Psalm 51, we're singing with grace in our hearts, both believing his promises and relying upon Christ, but also gladly receiving what he promises to give. This grace in our hearts is that comprehensive posture of our hearts unto the Lord in faith and hope and love. This is what gives our singing the true and beautiful melody of divine praise. We sing with grace in our hearts. Now, we may be blessed with outwardly pleasant voices or outwardly unpleasant voices, and there are ways to grow in singing and learn about how to modulate our voices and breathe and all of those things which are worth our time. But brethren, here's the fundamental thing and the use of this material to the end that Christ would dwell in us it is that our hearts would be filled with grace to the Lord. Our focus, though there's this impact upon one another, our brothers and sisters, our focus is unto the Lord Himself. Our eye is unto Him in our praise of Him. And that being the case, we sing then with great gladness and delight. Well, brethren, as we come to close, it's worth seeing that the use of the Psalms that God has given us is no marginal use. In other words, it's not just the occasional sort of thing that we make use of for worship and so on. It is an essential part of the Christian's life in this world. That we have no hesitation in saying if the Psalter goes unused, the heart withers. There's no hesitation because this is what Paul's saying. Notice, let the word of Christ dwell in you. How should I do that, Paul? Well, make use of the psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs which the Spirit has given. That as you sing with grace in your heart, you're instructing one another and exhorting one another, and Christ is dwelling in you. You see, the point is, the use of the psalms is to be a preeminent uh, part of the Christian's piety. And again, you can survey 
the history of the church, and you'll see that to be the case. And then you look at our day, and you see the meager advance of godliness, and we have many causes for that that extend beyond the use of the Psalms. But we do not hesitate to separate that as a cause. It is part of the cause. The Psalms have dwindled in their life or their influence of the life of the church. And so it's no wonder that the heart of the church has, as it were, ebbed as well. But brethren, we ought to be careful that we are not tempted with pride because it's not just the use of these but it is to the end that we would know Christ and with gratitude sing to Christ. And so it's not just the audible use of the Psalms. It's not just having it in the list of elements used for the day's worship or that we've done it at home. All of that's right and good, of course. But you'll see that the way that the word of Christ dwells in us is not merely by the mouth and tongue and voice singing these but singing these with grace in our hearts to the Lord and doing so that we might grow in wisdom, that Christ might dwell in us to that end. And so we see the gospel and Christian ordinance of making use of the Psalms that God has given us, but we also see the gracious demand for their use. That is, we're to use them with uh, grace in our souls as we worship the Lord. And so it's worth our while to ask. We, in our congregation, we use the Psalms. We praise God that He's preserved this perfect and spotless and comprehensive manual of praise. And likewise, the means by which we would know more fully the uh, fellowship of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's worth our, our time to ask this simple question. Do I sing, do I make use of these Psalms as they are intended to be sung? So when I have this altar open, whether at home in secret or with my family or here at the church, am I singing them that Christ would master me? Is that your thought? I'm opening this word both to express, as we'll see, the gratitude and faith that God has given, singing with grace in my hearts, but I'm singing to be mastered by this word. I'm singing that what is being cultivated in the Psalms would be cultivated in me. So you take, for example, Psalm 1, and you can see this, this point quite clearly. We sing Psalm 1, and we're right to, to, to sing the psalm as it's given to us. But what is it to be mastered by Christ as he's revealing his truth to us? It speaks of the blessed man, and we see that his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Well, we ought to ask ourselves, here's Christ revealing himself to us. Here's Christ exhorting us. Here's Christ instructing us. Is it so in my life? Am I one who delights in God's word? Do I delight to meditate on it day and night? You see, when we sing that, we hopefully, by God's grace, have something of it. And there's a sweetness of a resonation of the word in our own experience. I know something of this delight. I know something of this activity of meditating day and night in the law of the Lord. But doubtlessly, there will be seasons when we sing that and we're singing almost of something foreign to us. And when that happens, whether by degree or absolutely for that matter, 
We ought not to be content simply to sing the words and close the Psalter and then move on with the rest. But as we sing those words, we ought to be likewise asking God, make these words true for me. Bless me freely and by your grace that I would be made one who delights in the law of the Lord, that I would be made one to meditate upon your law day and night, that I would be made fruitful like a tree that bringeth forth this fruit in a season and so on. You can do this with all of the Psalms. The Psalms that are more revealing of Christ's person and work is presenting us with our Savior. And we're asking, do I believe this? Do I embrace this? Am I resting in this? Am I worshiping this one? We can do this with all the Psalms. The point is, it's not sufficient just to have the Psalms in our praise. It's that the Psalms in our praise are meant to master us, Christ dwelling in us by these. And so it's right for us and our families before coming to church to pray, Lord, as we come to each element of worship, have your way with it, but particularly with the use of the Psalms. As we sing those Psalms, oh, dwell in us by these. Use these means to dwell in us, to reprove us of sin, to instruct us in truth and righteousness, and to lead us into all holiness. Likewise, we sing to be mastered by the Lord, but we sing to praise the Lord with gratitude. And so we sing, and there are some tunes that more resonate with our makeup and others that may not, and that's fine. But the question is, do the words particularly those that express thanksgiving and praise to God, do they give a sound and a faithful expression of our souls when we thank the Lord, when we give thanks to God, when we praise and lift high His name? Are these faithful expressions of our own souls? If so, we thank God that He's using His means. If not, we pray God would both forgive us and give us such grace that these would be the case. Brethren, notice then what it is we're to seek, the presence of Christ dwelling in us by his word richly in all wisdom, what it is we're to use, particularly psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and how it is we're to use them singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord, that we would be glad in him who dwells in us by his word and spirit, and that by his grace through faith. Would you stand with me then for prayer?